Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is Mo Shalizi, manager of Marshmallow and so much more. Good to have you here, Mo. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Okay. Now, we live in a world where many people don't know what's going on outside their vertical. So give us a snapshot of who Marshmallow is and what is what he's doing right now. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I think, uh, you know, Marshmallow was conceptualized in, in the last three years. You know, we came up with this concept of creating something that was a faceless brand, something that, you know, everybody could connect to in a way. Um, and essentially, essentially like in a movement. Um, and within the last, you know, three years, we've, you know, he's got, he's the number eight most streamed artists on Spotify in the world right now. Number eight, the most streamed. Right. Okay. That's, that's what for 20, that's right this very second or for 2017? That's for right this second. So okay. So w- let's just to get the arc. Yeah. If you've been doing it for three years, what was he last year? The last two years we, we were feeding our core more so. Okay. I've interrupted you. Okay. So you do, you had this movement. Yeah, yeah. So we started this movement, um, fed the core dance fans for the last two years. And then it wasn't until August of last year that we released our first kind of commercial single. Um, it was a record called Silence with Khalid. Came out through RCA. Um, we're unsigned. Um, so we did a single deal with them. And then we released uh, the next single with Selena Gomez called Wolves on Interscope. And then we just released uh, another single with Warner called uh, Friends with Anne-Marie. She's a really well-known person in the UK. She's dope. And that's how we've been kind of running it. So as we sit here, how old are you? I'm 27. 27. So this is the younger generation. Yeah. And you're from Southern California, right? Correct. I went to UC Riverside, grew up in uh, the Inland Empire in Corona, um, and then moved to L.A. about four and a half years ago when I joined Red Light. Okay, but before we get there, you grow up in East L.A., and your parents do what for a living? So my mom worked uh, in department stores. She worked at Robinson's May growing up. And then my dad my dad passed away when I was 17. Wow. But uh, my dad was like a general contractor. My family was like a, a low class. We weren't rich at all. It was poor. Or so, so. Okay, your father dies when you're 17. That must really fuck you up. Yeah, yeah. It was To be honest, I, I mean, at the time, like— I look at it like as a blessing in disguise in a way, though. Like my dad was my best friend, but I wouldn't be sitting where I am today if, if you know, he would have never let me go into music. Like you know, being Middle Eastern, I think the the stereotype is you're either a doctor, or a lawyer, or engineer, or nothing. You know, so none of the none of the things that you know led to the path here would have happened if you know that didn't happen in a sense. But um, it also you know was my biggest motivation. You know, what I mean, I, I didn't ever want to go to school. I was like, you know, I don't need to go to college. But you know, before my dad passed away, I promised him, you know. I would go to college, get a degree, did that for him. And it's always been kind of like that motivation for me. And as you get older, you see the sacrifices your parents make for you as a kid. And it, none of it ever makes sense until you're older and until you get to that age where like, wow, like now it all makes sense. I used to think my parents were stupid. And now I'm like, wow, like, they, <laughs> they've, you know, really done so much to get us to where we're at and really make sure that, you know, we never had to deal with the things we have to deal with now. Now, were your parents born in America? No. So my parents are from Afghanistan. They came here like 40 years ago when the Russians invaded Afghanistan. They left um, and came here as... Now, Afghanistan, that's a crazy country. The Russians couldn't win. The Americans couldn't win. Yeah. Did your family have a big identity with Afghanistan, or as soon as they moved to America, they left that behind? Yeah, they left that behind. Yeah. And so you've never been to Afghanistan? I actually went... Uh, I was 13. I went um, for a month. My dad was back out there, and then my mom started working with the military as a translator for a little bit, and then I went there to see my dad for like a month when I was 13, uh, and it was... I mean, it's a culture shock, you know, growing up in the Inland Empire and then going to a country like that where it's a third world country. It's uh, it's definitely different, but it was, you know, quite an eye-opening experience. 
Well, Tom Freston, who used to run MTV, after leaving uh, Viacom, he invested in television stations. And then we were at lunch about a year ago, and he was saying they killed everybody involved. I mean, it's really got more dangerous within the last year. Definitely, definitely. Uh, yeah, I, I think they just don't they don't show it on the news as much anymore because they've moved on to different topics. But, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it hasn't settled down. Right, exactly. Like I watch Vice News, which Tom is also involved in, and you see pictures of what's really going on in Syria, and it's like you're horrified. It's crazy. It's crazy. Okay, so anyway, you're in the Inland Empire. Growing up, are you a music fan? Um, I was always in intrigued, by, but my dad wouldn't let me listen to rap music growing up. He wouldn't let you listen no, to it? No, no. I remember when I was like, I was like seven or eight. And Coolio had this song uh, where it was like, one, two, three, four, get your woman up off the floor. And I remember playing it in the car with my dad. And from that moment, he was like, you can never listen to this to this again. Like, is it, <laughs> you, do you know what this means? And I'm like, no. So then, uh, and then I remember I, I took, my cousin had like DMX's uh, album. I think it was like when, I forgot what it was called, but um, it was, uh, he, you know, I took it from my cousin. I used to hide it under all my clothes. And anytime my dad wasn't home, I would listen to DMX and be like, oh my God, like I love, I love rap. I love this. <laughs> Uh, and then it wasn't until I was like 14 or 15, or I think, no, I was 16. I got my, my first car. Um, I just kind of gradually started listening to it again and like not hiding it. And then he was cool with it. Um, oh, so he turned around. He turned around now, but I think at that point I was seven years old listening to a song talking about put your girl on the right, floor. Right, right, right. You know. So there are how many kids in your family? I have one little sister. And what does she do now? She's in nursing school. Okay. So you go through high school. There's, you're just listening. You're a music fan. You're not in the business or dreaming about being in the business. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not at all. Um, you know, so when I was in high school, um, you know, I, I, my senior year I was graduating and that's when my dad passed away. So, you know, it took its toll on me where, uh, you know, my mom wasn't really working. So I was having to do everything I could to kind of provide for the family. And then, um, through that though, I fell in love with electronic music. Just, it was one kind of vertical where I could escape through and listen to. And it was something that like I loved, um, and then I was like, you know, this is this is cool. Okay, so this is like 2007 or so. 2008, yeah. 2008. How do you find electronic music at that point? I think that's when uh, I just – a friend of mine was like, Yo, you know, there's this festival um, called Nocturnal Wonderland in San Bernardino. Like, let's let's go to this festival. Um, and I was just like, okay, whatever. Like, I'd never been to a festival. And I went and then just kind of saw the culture of, of you know, this – this dance music in a sense and was just like this is kind of cool um and then just really liked the music and then i connected with the music and then you know was like okay maybe uh maybe i want to learn how to like be more involved in a sense and maybe i wanted to start djing um so then i bought some turntables um and then started with that and then uh was just like you know i need to i need to make my money back for these turntables i spent a lot of money on these at the time and found a, a local dive bar in the dive bar. You're still in high school. I just gra I graduated now, so okay. I, was in, I was in college. Okay. Um, so I was I turned. I think at this point I was 21, and I found like a, there was a dive bar down the street from my house. One side was a strip club, and then one side was a sports bar, and you could walk through each side. So I, I convinced the owner to allow me to start like an EDM night every Thursday night there in in Corona, um, and uh, you know this. This dive bar was on the show Bar Rescue. Like, that's how much of a piece of shit it was. It was the worst thing ever. But it worked. Um, at that time, electronic music was just, like, you know, starting to build. And um, every Thursday night, I was bringing, you know, a couple hundred kids from all over the Inland Empire to this bar to listen to, like, you know, dubstep and all this other stuff. Um, and then from there, it just kind of started building. 
And then, uh, you know, I was like, okay, I need to scale this up a little. Oh, okay, before you get there, yeah. you're in college at UC Riverside. Yeah. Are you doing anything with music then before you no. hit 21? No, no, I was a finance major. Okay, and that's what you graduated in? Yeah. So you buy the turntables because you want to get further into the scene. Right. And a little bit slower. How do you decide, okay, I'm going to go approach this guy in the bar? Most people are not that motivated. Yeah, I mean, for me, I was, you know, I was a kid that was, you know, as a kid selling candy to all the neighborhood kids from Costco. And then I was, as I got older, I was, you know, selling everything I could. You know, I was coming to L.A. and getting like, you know, fake jeans from the alley and taking it to all the kids, you know, and selling it to the kids at school. Like, you know, I've got true religions. I've got these jeans. Like, I was always like, you know, looking, always like hustling in that. that So you're a self-starter. If it wasn't music, you'd be successful doing something else. I mean... I don't know, but yeah, I would think I would think so. Okay, so the concept of I have these turntables and I get my money back and I got to find a place to DJ is not a huge step for you. Not really. No, I mean I, it was just something of like you know I was how can I make money off this off this you know and at that time DJs were starting to become cool and it was a new trend and it was like okay maybe I can learn this and and kind of go with it. I mean, were you any good in retrospect? No, I was terrible. I was, I, you know, I look back at myself like, you know, like, dude, I sucked. I don't know what I was doing. So, um, but it worked. I mean, uh, it, it worked in a sense of like I was bringing, you know, 200, 300 kids every Thursday night and created. Okay. So how did you get the 200 or 300 kids there? Facebook. So Facebook had just kind of, Facebook was like, you know, in its thing. So I was, you know, I was getting, you know, these, all these girls from school and stuff like that, getting their personal Facebooks from them, inviting all of their friends and sending them messages, acting like I was a girl, being like, you know, hey, come meet me at this show on Thursday <laughs> night. You know, so I was just guerrilla marketing and then hiring, you know, other kids to go and put flyers all over, you know, UC Riverside and RCC and all these different colleges and just kind of just doing doing what a promoter would do in a sense. Um, and, uh, you know, sp- spread the word. And then the rest was word of mouth because, you know, um, we had a bunch of girls there all the time. So when the girls are there, guys want to come. That's for sure. Okay, so you start doing it, and are you making any money? Yeah, so I, you know, the first couple nights I was getting like $300 every Thursday, and I was like, okay. And then finally I was like, you know what? Like, I know I have something here. The bar never has this many people here. So I went to the owner and was like, you need to give me $1,500 every night cash when your bar exceeds uh, $2,500 in sales. And she's like, you're crazy. And I was like, fine, I'll go to another bar. And then she's like, okay, fine. Like, I'll give it to you. And then literally every Thursday for like six months, like her bar was doing like, you know, five grand a night, which for her was a lot. So, you know, I was walking in with like 1500 plus a bonus sometimes when, and I was like, cool, you know, at, at 21, you know, on my side job was working at, I was a, I was a sales rep for Hewlett Packard. So I was, I was on the weekends working as a rep at Best Buy selling. HP. Okay. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. When did you start? Being a sales rep. So I started that when I was 18. Okay. So your father is now deceased. Yeah. And are you doing it for the family or for your own money or for college? No, it was, it was for more so just the family and, and kind of my own, like, spending money. Okay. So how do you become a sales rep for HP? Uh, one of my cousins was doing that and then was like, hey, like, you know, in the I wor- so I started – at 16, I started working in the movie theaters. So I was cleaning theaters at – Okay, you're, so your father is still alive. Yeah. So money is you're, you're not upper class, but money you you want to you want to work, or your family says you got to no, work. They, they were like, you have to work. You have to start a, start. So at 16, I started uh, working at the movie theaters. And so, you said your job was cleaning up. Yeah, so I was an usher. So I was cleaning movie theaters, cleaning the popcorn and all that stuff, and occasionally would find something cool in the theater. 
Um, like what? Just like someone dropped something and it was <laughs> something cool. So you wouldn't turn it into no, lost no, no, and found. I, I would turn if it was like a wallet or something like that. I would turn it in. But sometimes you find cool stuff. Uh, okay, now, like what? If what, I don't you know, know. a watch, <laughs> dope. I mean, I, what is it? I don't it? even know. I can't even say. Okay, um, but you know, but you can't. Yeah, say. yeah. Okay, and are you enjoying doing that job? No, no. I mean, it, it wasn't cool at all because I would see all the kids, you know, from school at that time, my like high school, coming and watching, and I'm the one cleaning the theater. But it was a job. I didn't really care. Whatever. So how long did you do that for? I did that for about a year and a half um, or two years, and then when I turned 18. Um, my cousin linked me up with Hewlett Packard. And the job was what? So it was basically just a sales rep for So I would go to different Best Buy stores as a rep for Hewlett Packard and then uh, just sit in the computer aisle and convince people why they should buy Hewlett Packard over. Okay. So your job was to be like the in house guy at Best Buy Correct. and say Hewlett Packard as opposed to the Asus or any right. other competitor. Right. And did you get paid a flat salary or commission? Yeah, I think I made like $18 an hour. That's not bad, actually. It wasn't bad. No, at that time, it wasn't bad. So I was like, all right, cool. And, then, and how did you become such a big expert that you could do that job? Uh, I wasn't. I, they just give you tons of training and, you know, you take all these courses online. Like they have these, uh, like they're uni- online universities that you that they give you for HP through their platforms. So you learn about new product, product launches and stuff like that. And then, to be honest, it's not, it's not hard to convince someone when – it's like when you go to a store and be like, what should I buy or what should I eat here? And the person tells you something and you're like, okay, like I believe you. I'm going to buy that. It's the same thing with a computer. Everyone's like, I don't know what to get. And, you know, like, well, you should get this because this. And then they but buy But you got it through your cousin. But how hard was it to get that job? It wasn't too hard. I mean – Okay. I, so you did, did that for how long? I did that for two years. Um, and then that's when I, when I turned 21. And, and on the side I was doing like the DJing stuff. Okay. So – you were working two days a week doing that on the yeah, weekends? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so now the DJ thing is happening. You're still doing the HP thing. Yeah. And then what happens next? Then I quit the – once the, the bar started kind of picking up, I quit the HP thing. And your mother says what? Um, she was just like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> well, why are you DJing? Like, did, was, um, But I was like, you know, I'm in college. Like, let me just – I'll figure it out. Um, so then I was doing the HP thing and then uh, DJing. And then from there um, – the DJing thing was going so well that I was like, okay, I need to scale this up. And there was a, a venue uh, down the street from uh, my house that was like a House of Blues type venue. So I struck a deal with them of like, hey, I'm going to bring in real talent and create uh, you know, an, an, a, a night here every month. We'll do a show every month with real DJs, like well-known DJs and stuff like that. Um, so they were cool with it. I did that. Okay, but before you get there, you're in the bar. That's a cash business Ever have any dangerous situations? Yeah, so that ended because uh, my 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 six months at the bar ended because somebody uh, <laughs> somebody pulled out a gun inside the bar at one of my nights, and then somebody got stabbed in the parking lot. It, there was a big brawl. Someone pulled out a gun inside, and then people got stabbed outside, and then yeah, it ruined my business on that end. So then I had to move. Okay, it. but before you, were, how did it end? Did the cops actually interview you, or no, did you no, skate? no? It was pe- people were just scared to come now. Because that that dive bar, like I said, it was on bar. It was, it's in the hood almost. So then uh, once that happened, everyone was like, "Well, I don't know if I'm gonna go there anymore." <laughs> okay, so it wasn't the it wasn't the bar owner. No, it was no, the customers no, no. who said, yeah, was, "We're done." Yeah, was, so how many dead nights did you have before you realized this is done? Well, I never lost money because I owned the equipment. I right. just I you know I would just bring my equipment and play, and that was it. So you know if if the bar didn't do what it did, I still walked out with money, which at that time was cash and was good and. Helped help pay the bills. Okay, so now you go to this new club. 
Do you have relationships with name talent at that point? No, no. So I was. So you're completely BSing. Yeah. So I was just reaching out to agents and getting raped by like getting the note. The you know <laughs> I remember there was this one booking I did and it was a, a group of four DJs, and um, they ended up charging me the, the regular price of the group for the full group, but they sent me the one guy that was the ghost producer. So nobody even knew who the guy was. And he, it was his first show ever DJing. And I had paid like five grand for this guy. And I get him and he's just like, yeah, I've never really DJed. And I'm like, well, so what do you do? And he's like, well, I produce all the music for the group. And I'm like, damn, like, what am I going to do with this guy? So I'm like sitting there nervous, like, dude, this guy doesn't even know how to DJ. Like, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I, I learned uh, the hard way of just like. Okay, so you have that situation. Did you call the agent and say, I want my money back? Yeah, I called the agent and was just like, yo, you, and he's like, no, I assure you he knows what he's doing. Like, he, he it's fine. Like. This this will be all good, um, and it, you know I still made money on the show and was just like whatever, so it wasn't like the worst, but it, you know it was scary. Okay, so you convince this guy to do it once a month. Yeah. The bar, the guy who owns the club, right? And you start. How long do you do that for? Um, only like it was it was like six months, six another six months or so. And it was always successful. Yeah, it was good until until I partnered with the the guy saw what I was doing, the owner of the club. So he's like, hey, let's partner on the next event. Let's up the up the budget and get a bigger name. What was uh, the capacity? Like 400, 500? No, it was, uh, I think, 1,300. Oh, so big. Yeah, yeah. So it, was, it wasn't small. And he's like, you know, I have a friend that's a, he books talent for all these nightclubs in Orange County. He's going to give us a deal on a, a DJ um, and let's book him. And I was just like, okay, fine. So we went halves on this DJ and he, the guy got bent over backwards on the rate he got this guy for. The guy's rate is like six grand, and we ended up paying 20 grand for this guy. Whoa. Yeah, so we lost on that show, and I was just like, you know what? I don't even want to do this anymore. But through all that, um, one, of my, one of my close friends, he was like an avid photographer, and he had a, he had a, a blog. Um, it was called U.S. Dubstep, so he did like um, – he was blogging about dubstep, and blogs were powerful at that time. So he was helping me promote these shows, um, and I had told him like, hey – um, you know, you help me promote the show and it does well, I'll buy you the new camera that you want um, so you could go and shoot photos. And I did that. And then coincidentally during this time, he had gotten uh, an offer to go on the road as a full-time photographer for a well-known DJ named Borgor. Um, and then that's kind of how I got my chops in meeting. I met Borgor, him and I connected, became really close. Um, and that was kind of all I needed to really, like, you know, I got in with him and, you know, we became close, and then he was like, you know, uh, he was with Red Light. At, he's still with Red Light, but his managers at Red Light had convinced him to start a management company. So he did that, and he was like, you know, do you want to start managing artists with me? And I, and I was like, okay, yeah. I was like, you know, I'm almost going to graduate, and I'm like, if I can be. So prior to this, you're just hanging with him, going yeah. going to shows, being his butt. Exactly. So just being friends with him, and, you know, that was it. And then when uh, he kind of saw, like, my work ethic and everything I was doing and hustling and he was just like, yo, you know, if you want to manage artists with me, like, you know, we should do that. Like, he had a label um, and was just like, you know, there's a couple of, guys, you know, independent young guys that are releasing. They're not really well known. And, like, maybe you can just start managing some of these guys. Um, and we did. And I was like, cool. So I agreed to it. Um, signed this kid named Sick Dope. Was my first artist with him. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was kind of how we started started it and then was it immediately successful no 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 no. so so i signed him um you know i was making a couple hundred bucks a month off of commissions and i had to split it with borgor every time so you were living on what i was i was losing money yeah. so what were you living on i was i wasn't I, I had 
I had a bunch of money saved from the bar and stuff like that. Um, and that was kind of what I was living on. And then I would get a couple, you know, hundred bucks here and there every month from the ma- management stuff. But I didn't really care. Um, I was, you were living at home? I was living at home. And then I was like, I was buying cars on Craigslist and selling them, flipping them, like tinting the windows and then reselling them. And like just doing all kinds of different stuff like that. Um, and uh, yeah, so then, you know, we did that for about a year together. We worked together. And then about a year in, I realized that like, you know, it was kind of a conflict of interest for an artist to have an artist management company because none of my guys could ever grow past right. past him. Um, so uh, it was then that, you know, I had to make the decision either stay here or go on my own. Um, and that was kind of it. So, you know, we had the convo and, you know, he wished me the best and, you know, I started managing on my own. Um, and then uh, at that time, then everyone started approaching me, um, you know, red light, uh, 360 teamwork. Okay, wait, but you're coming with no acts. I had, so I, by, at that time, I, in the year that we were doing it together, I had three acts. And he let you walk with those acts. He let me walk with those And those acts. three acts were? There's a kid named Sick Dope, and this kid named Jaws, and another kid named uh, .com. And what was the status of their careers when you parted? So Jaws had just, so coincidentally, Jaws had just released a song that was starting to get a lot of support in the DJ world. And a close friend of mine is a talent buyer for Insomniac. He was at Burning Man and I had sent him the song. So he was driving around in his golf cart at Burning Man playing this song and Diplo stopped him. And Diplo was like, yo, man, like I keep hearing the song everywhere. Who is this? And he's like, this is New Kid Jaws. So then the next day, he, my buddy calls me. He's like, yo, you won't believe it, but Diplo asked for the Jaws record. I was like, okay. And then I get an email the next day from Diplo, like, yo, man, that song is huge. I want to sign it to Matt Decent. So then from there, you know. Okay, let's go back. Yeah. How did the guy end up playing it in his golf cart? He had a golf cart, and he he was just playing music in the golf cart. Okay, how to... hard did you work that guy? N- not at all. I didn't work him at all. He's just a friend of mine. So pure serendipity. Yeah, it was honestly, it was the most random thing ever. Okay. Just, uh, so Diplo wants to sign the act to Mad Decent. Yeah, so Diplo wants to sign uh, Jaws, and we do it. Um, and then Diplo puts a lot of, like, uh, he gives Jaws a big cosign and starts talking. And Jaws is like one of the most talented producers. The kid is, is a beast. And uh, Diplo like starts putting him on and just kind of talking about him in interviews. And, you know, we're working together with him on different tracks. And, you know, he helped a lot in the in the beginning of my career of just like with Jaws. And then once Jaws kind of blew up in the dance world, um, it opened the door for me and, um, you know, having that leverage and starting to build my career. Stand by. We'll take a short break and get right back to this conversation with Mo Shalizi, manager of Marshmallow. You're listening to the Bob Left Sets podcast. Each week I interview a new guest and we dive into their backgrounds, current events, and everything in between. If you like the podcast, subscribe, rate, and review the show. Check out our earlier episodes. You can hear them all on TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, or your podcast player of choice. Let's continue the conversation with Mo Shalizi, manager of Marshmallow. Okay, so you had these three acts, and suddenly all these management companies are interested in making a deal with you. Yeah. So how did you decide to go to Red Light? I looked at I looked at who was there, um, and I you know at the time I was twenty three, right? And there was no other young managers at Red Light. Everyone else was old, older. Um, so for me, it was just like I was unsure what was going to happen with my career and as a whole. And I was like, you know what, like. I see all these other guys, and all these other guys are worried about just the bottom line of, like, what, what are, like before anything, they're like, what's your commissions? What are you making? What is this? What is this? And, like, Red Light was the only place where – and Borgor is managed by Red Light, so his manager is Steve Satherwhite, 
and uh, Richard Bishop at the time were kind of like, hey, you know, we want you to come in with us. Um, and, you know, I'd worked with them for about a year and was just like, you know what, like, I feel like here I have uh, the most job security in a sense being, you know, 23 and being in the trenches all the time. These guys are not in the clubs the same way I am all the time. So it was just like, you know, fuck it. Like, I'm going to take the chance to go here. Um, okay, so Jaws is blowing up with Diplo. And continue the narrative. Yeah, so at that point, um, I uh, I had just started this idea called Marshmallow. Um, and I just joined Red Light. And when I had played this music to Borgor, this Marshmallow project, and I had told him about before I split okay, with Okay, we have a little bit. There was a DJ involved, but no one knew who it was. Cor- uh, correct. Yeah. So, mar- oh, so, so, so go with, it's a little bit slower how you come up with the idea of Marshmallow. Um, without going into too much detail because it's still secret. Uh, okay, go up to the line and what's secret. <laughs> although a lot of information has now come out. His identity has now come out. Definitely. Um, no, it was just uh, uh, someone I was working with started making a different style of music. And uh, we knew it would never work with – like the dance kids are so close-minded in the sense of like if they like you for making one style of music, the second you make something else, they're like, you sold out. Like we don't want to listen to you anymore. You sold out. So for us it was like you know we knew that – this style, um, there had to be something new with it. It couldn't be attached to any other identity besides something new and fresh. Um, so we came up with the idea of... The music- How successful was this DJ before you came up with a marshmallow concept? Um, not very successful. It was just, okay. it was just a, you know, a normal two to $3,000 a show kind of okay. act. So nothing crazy. Um, and then, so you want to have another identity, so you're not rejected by his core audience. Correct. And whose idea is that? Yours or his? It was it was mine to come up with something new. Okay. And then, and we, who came up with the name Marshmallow? We both did collectively. We we kind of he was pitching me like he was sending me a song a day, and it was this new style that was super mellow, and uh, the music was mellow, melodic, and you know, I was just like, yo, how are you making all this? And he's just, I don't know, it's just coming to me. Like, I, it's easy. And, you know, in one week, he sent me like six different songs. So I was like, okay, we have to come up with a new, new name. Um, so we thought about it. And I was like, okay, what about Marshmallow? The music's super mellow. Um, and, you know, I remember he was at dinner with his family. And he told his, his family, like, you know, Mo wants to call it Marshmallow. And they're like, DJ Marshmallow? Like, that's so <laughs> stupid. No way. And I was like, dude, like, we have nothing to lose. Like, let's let's come up with the logo and see. So I sat there. And to know, what degree was it inspired by Dead Mouse? Zero. Zero. I, yeah. I, to be honest, there was no – Dead Mouse was not an inspiration at all. I think people put the, the helmet correlation as like, you know, but there's been – Daft Punk. There's been people before Dead Mouse that had helmets that still have helmets. Like, I think it's just a costume at the end of the day. Um, but the reasons why we did that was just, you know – I guess I'll get into that later, but, um, you know, from there, uh, we came up with the logo. I sent him the logo. He liked it and gave me his blessing and was like, okay, cool. Let's just do it. So we started. Okay, wait, wait. He sends you all these mixes. Mm-hmm. Do you immediately see dollar signs? No, no, not at all. You're, uh, are you just saying, I'm, this is a, a client and I'm just going to do something different? Or do you say, Wow, this, I'm going to work this hard because this, I know this is the new thing. No, I mean, I just was like, yo, this is different. Like, this is something that's not – I think in dance music especially, like, when you're able to create a sound and you get you get kind of titled with that sound. So when you when people are like, oh, that sounds like this person because it, that's his style, you know what I mean? If, like, that's when you're the most successful, you know what I mean? And this style, nobody had really pioneered the sound that he was doing. 
So we were like, okay, like let's just, you know, I didn't see dollar signs at all. I was like, yo, I'm just going to put this out and let's just see what it does. So we And you put it out how? So th- through SoundCloud. So okay. we, we put out a song a day on SoundCloud every day for free download. Um, and, you know, in one week we put song five songs out. And What was the reaction? Uh, people were just, the first song dropped, people were like, okay, this is cool. And at the time I was, you know, reposting it through my network of artists that I had. Um, and then we put out another song, another song, and the people kind of were catching on, like, yo, what is this? Like, who is this Marshmallow guy? You know, the, the there was no photo, there was nothing, it was just a logo. Um, so people were just kind of wondering what it was. And then from there, um, about two months in, two, three months in, I get a call from Skrillex. Um, and Skrillex is like, yo, man, you know, I, I had known Skrillex through Jaws. Like, he was a, uh, he started messing with Jaws, too, and um, we'd built a relationship. And he's like, yo, I need to know who Marshmallow is. He's like, I can't stop listening to this music. And I'm like, I can't tell you. I was like, it's a secret. And he's like, no, like, you know, you got to tell me. Like, I'm going through some stuff right now, and it's all I'm listening to. Like, I really need to connect with, with him. So I told them, um, and then, you know, I connected uh, Mello and Skrillex, and Mello at the time had never met Skrillex. Like Skrillex was an idol to him, and you know he was just a, a small town DJ. So then um, from there, um, one day he could come to LA, and I was like, "Yo, you need to hit up Skrillex now. Like, you, right. you need to connect with them." Uh, and he's like, "No way, I'm not calling Skrillex. Like, there's no way." So I was like, "Okay." I stopped the car in the middle of the road, and I said, "Yo, I'm not moving until you call Skrillex." <laughs> so um, he's like, "Fine, whatever. Like, watch. He's not going to answer." He calls Skrillex, and uh, a woman picks up. A woman picks up and is like, you know, hello, hey, Marshmallow, like, good to talk to you. Uh, you know, Skrillex says so much about you. And he, like, whispers to me. He's like, dude, it's Katie Kirk. And I'm like, what? I, 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 I didn't know who Katie Kirk was. I, and I was like, oh, okay, like, um, okay. And then uh, so he goes into convo with her, and she's like, you know, maybe one day I'm going to be interviewing you. And, you know, Skrillex was like, Sonny was like, you know, uh, Marshmallow, he's a really talented kid. He's the next generation, all this stuff, like, you know, really, you know, speaking highly about him. And he gets off the phone, and he's like, dude, he was in an interview, and he told me he's going to call me later. I was like, okay, cool. He's like, do you think that's going to get posted? And I was like, nah, no way. Like, there's no way they're going to put that in an interview. A week later, we wake up to the front page of Yahoo News, and Katie Kirk's interview with Skrillex is in there, and it's a video interview. And in the video interview, um, Skrillex's phone rings in the interview, and, it's, wow. and it says uh, Chris Marshmallow on the phone and at this time we had created this buzz through you know the reddit reddit sphere and online where nobody knew who marshmallow was and everyone was trying to figure it out so when this posted this was the first clue anybody ever got to his identity they're like oh his name is chris and then you know everything just started going from there but you know it was probably it it caught so much attention from everybody with the whole katie kirk thing and then from there um the music just started connecting um we did a couple big remixes and then, um, you know, then we hadn't uh, we hadn't done a show for the first year. How did you get the remixes? It's like we did a remix for the Skrillex and Justin Bieber song, Where Are You Now? Right. Um, that was a really big remix for us. Justin Bieber started playing it in his tour. Um, and then from there, we did like a big remix of Adele's Hello. It was an unofficial remix, but the remix got almost like 450,000 downloads. Um, and it was just it was just hosted on our we had a there's a platform called Hive. So we were hosting it through our Hive channel. Um and then from there, it just kind of connected. And then, um, you know, I wasn't letting him tour. So the, for the first year. Speak, what was the theory? Uh, I didn't want it to come into the market at a low price. You know, so I didn't want to build from a $2,000 act to 10000 to 15000 So 
Um, you know, we we turned down every single offer. And he's living on what? He's living off of what he had from his prior career, but he didn't. He doesn't live a lavish. He didn't live a lavish life. So just a normal kid. So he was fine without going on the road for a year. Yeah, he was cool with it. He was cool with it because um, he had his other project to offset his expenses. And you know, for for us too, it was like you know, let's do this right. So uh, it wasn't until we uh, we waited a year, and then we got a big festival offer, um, like a thirty thousand dollar offer to play our first show. And we're like, okay, cool. We got the billing we needed on the festival, so we could come into the market. And Which buy it. festival was it? It was a hard hard day of the dead. Okay. So we were able to bypass, you know, a lot of uh, DJs by being billed over them. You know, in, in, in the DJ world, it means a lot. Billing, right. billing is a huge thing. So we were able to come in with, like, you know, top-tier billing, a big set time. And then from there, you know, we launched our first tour, and it was a hard-ticket tour. We did, like, you know, six to 600 to 1,000 cap venues, and we sold that out immediately. Now, what are the dates worth to you? What do you mean? Well, how much did you get paid on six hundred to a thousand? Oh, so I, I got uh, not you as a manager, oh, yeah, but you the marshmallow. Yeah, so we got we. So what I did was I wanted the lower ticket prices on all right. the shows. So, Which so they were what? So there, our fees were like between like five and seven thousand. Okay, for those shows based off the ticket scale. And there are how many dates in those markets? There was there was I think the tour was like twelve shows. Okay, so small. It was small. It was small, but it was all the major markets. Um, so we hit it and everything blew out right away. So there was this huge buzz of like, yo, Marshmallow just sold out his whole tour immediately, like right on on sale. So through that, um, you know, and the music and everything, we kept going and, you know, we got, we caught a lot of breaks just with publicity and all kinds of stuff like that. And then, you know, the conspiracy. Well, give us an example or People just trying to figure out who Marshmallow was. So every day there was an article being posted of like, Martin Garrix is Marshmallow, Tiesto's Marshmallow, this person is Marshmallow, this, and it's like every day it was just a new, a new theory. Um, that kept us in the in the blogosphere every single day, um, and with that we were just releasing music consistently. Um, and then it wasn't until about two two years in that I found TuneCore, and we didn't at this time all of our music was only on SoundCloud. We didn't have any music on. So you were unaware of TuneCore? Yeah, I was unaware of it. And then someone was like, "Yo, you should check out TuneCore because we." You know, we didn't want to sign For those who don't know, TuneCore is a service where for a very small annual fee, they place your music on all the streaming and download services. Yeah, it's like $60 for five years. So I found this and was like, okay, let's rebundle all this music that we'd put out a year and a half ago or two years ago and put it out as a new album and get it up on Apple and Spotify on all these other DSPs. And we did that. Um, What kind of reaction did you get? The album went number one. And the songs were all still available as a free download on on our SoundCloud. So we were like, what the heck? And then we just kept putting out new music, new music. And then, um, you know, then I go. So at this point in time, are the major labels knocking on your door? Not really. No, it wasn't. It, they were. We got interest of like doing remixes and stuff like that for majors, but nobody was really knocking on the door. Um, it wasn't until about uh, last year that we got the majors interested. Okay, so you're on all these uh, digital services you making any money on that? Um, initially, no. But it was, you know. But once I, you know, was able to build a relationship with the, you know, the DSPs, you know, personally with the guys that were important to us in a sense. Um, you know, we got the same placements as you know major artists were getting, and you know, it really, I think for for them, like we we brought everybody to the table from the beginning. You know, so all the guys at Apple, at Spotify, everybody knew about Marshmallow as it was being growing. You know? Okay, but you know, 
at that point in time, while it's growing, your leverage is limited. How do you establish those relationships with Spotify and Apple? I think everyone was just seeing the, how much attention was on Marshmallow from the big names. So the door was open. Yeah, so the door opened and from there it was just like I think for them, you know, we got them connected so early that they felt vested in this project and they got behind it. Um, so then, you know, then once the label started coming in, I was getting the pitch of like, you've done a great job so far, but now watch what we can do and we'll elevate the brand. And I'm like, yo, man, like I get the same placements that you do, you know, and, and he's not a radio artist. We're not looking for radio at this time. Like, it does, you know, we're building our core still, you know, we're building a foundation. So labels come to you. You're not going to the labels. No. no. And, you, and you say no to all of them. Yeah. 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 So it wasn't until, you know, we, we got an, a big offer, a multi-million dollar offer where we're like, man, like this, this could be cool. Um, but then, you know, sitting down with the labels and hearing what their thoughts were about Marshmallow and, and it was just like, okay, these people don't really even know what this is. Like, <laughs> it's just like one of those things where they're just trying to offer us money in case it blows up and right. they have it on their roster. So I was like, you know what, like, forget, like, fuck this, like, let's pass. And we passed on all the deals. And, um, that usually makes them hungrier, though. It does. And, and now, I mean, the deal we got offered, you know, two weeks ago I had an offer that's, I would think, like 10x of what the deal was, you know, nine months ago, 10 months ago, um, because we had to really prove ourselves. Everyone thought it was a gimmick. Everyone's like, oh, it's a dead, dead mouse knockoff. He doesn't make music. It's a, but, the, you know, he's one of the most. Okay, so, so let's go back. First year, you're off the road. Yeah. Then you do 12 dates and you go with Tune Quartz, you're on all the DSPs. Right. What's the step after that? And then festivals, going into the festival world. But um, all the festivals are eager to have him. Yeah, everyone was eager to and have him. And how many uh, festivals did he play that next year? A lot. We did We did a lot of big festivals. How um, much production did you bring? None. None. We so the helmet and that was it? Yeah, the helmet and, that, and the artist and the USB stick and that's it. <laughs> so um, that was it. But then we used, we used those festivals as kind of our entry point into doing bigger hard ticket shows. So we'd come into the market, do a big festival, get a big look, and then – we we launched our first kind of big hard ticket tour. So then, no, and the agent is who? The agent is Steve Gordon at Circle Talent. So he's got a him and a, his partner Kevin Gimble. They have a smaller boutique agency, but they have a lot of dance acts. Um, so you know, we had I had like a couple clients with him prior to that. So we had kind of built this whole thing together. Um, so then it was then that we. We're like, you know, let's use the momentum and go into the bigger rooms. Okay, so how big were the rooms now? So then we, in November of uh, 2016, we did uh, three nights at the Shrine. So we sold 15,000 tickets in about a, a lot of tickets. Yeah, we did 15,000 in about an hour and a half. Just to be clear, since that's so many tickets, how does the word get out? How do you sell those 15,000? Um, or, well, how long did it take you to sell? The well, how many dates did you put up at first? So we put out, so we rolled out everything. Um, we rolled out everything and then the on sale for LA was on its own dates. Right. So the first, the first shrine blew out immediately. Right. Then we went up with the second one that blew out after like 30 minutes. Wow. And then the third one went up and then that blew out after like an hour. So really there was no promotion involved. The audience uh, knew. No, the audience knew. We posted on our social media like, hey, tickets are going up. It blew out. Then we did the Bill Graham in San Francisco. We did 8,000 tickets and uh, I think it was less than like 30 seconds. That blew out immediately. Red Rocks blew out in a couple hours. Um, so we did 10,000 there. Um, and then we did uh, two nights at Echo Stage in D.C. We did in Montreal, we did three New City Gases, which was 12,000 tickets, which was their venue record for an artist doing that many. Um, so right off the bat, you know, we did, you know, 10 to 
or eight to twelve thousand tickets in every major market. That we and how much in. production are you bringing now? So we, so at that time, yeah, we brought in um, like one semi truck. We had just created a rig um, that you know it was just a big LED wall with some stuff here and there, um, a lot of like special effects, like you know fireworks and stuff like that, but nothing, nothing crazy because. You know, our mentality was like, this is our first kind of big tour. If we go balls to the walls now, what are we going to do the next tour? Right, right. So we were like, let's, you know, scale it back because we know the kids want to come and watch us. So, like, let's keep this more about Marshmallow than production and stuff like that. Because, you know, there's a lot of acts now that their entire career revolves around their production where it's like, you know, they have to bring, you know, a million, two million dollar rig to, to make up for their cheesiness. So it's like, you know, we don't need to do that. Like, okay, so it's November of 2016 that you start this big tour. Yeah. And that plays for how long? Um, like our tour, like the traditional dance tours aren't like a traditional artist tour. They're more like fly-in dates. We fly in. We do the major markets throughout a, a time span. So like that tour was within two months, but it was like, you know, there's festivals mixed in. There's, you know, so we had our dates for these hard ticket shows. Um, but they were, we would just fly into them. The production would be there. We would set it up with a promoter and then it would be done. Okay. So we go into 2017. What's the next event? 2017 was this, so this last, last year was all, uh, it was global. It was like, how do we make sure that this, you know, momentum and imprint carries on to a global level? So we spent almost two months in Europe, uh, a lot of time in Asia. These these are festivals? Festivals. Okay. Festivals and a couple, uh, bigger hard ticket shows, but mainly festivals. Um, you know, so it was, it was big on Europe doing a run there. Um, we did like, we sold out the Brixton Academy in London and the UK. Um, and then just doing uh, a bunch of festivals. Um, and then that was kind of it. And then this year is when we launched. Well, well, before you get to this year, yeah. suddenly he's involved with literally top tier talent. How does that come together? Uh, people just started talking about him. People, he, everyone was kind of like, you know, we were getting him into the studio with people, um, and, uh, people were just meeting him, you know, we like through just the hype, people were int- intrigued by his brand. So you, you're not working it. Your phone is ringing yeah. or are you working it? We, I mean, I was working it for sure. I was working at trying to f- get him in the studio with people, but it wasn't until, you know, we just had a lot of big, like Coachella was a big moment for us. We did Coachella last year. Um, we headlined. The Sahara tent closed it out, and you know the tent was rammed from front to back. And you know we brought we throughout the process of the the project, we've always brought special guests with us everywhere. So we what's the thinking there? So it was always about like you know connecting. It was it was twofold. It was you know for us getting Marshmallow connected with these other artists and exposing him to their fan base. Because again, for Marshmallow, it's like I, you know we need people to see him one time and they'll never forget who he is. You know it's not a traditional DJ where. You know, it could be, you know, Calvin Harris could walk in here and nobody might recognize him. Right. But with him, it's like, you know, it's a brand. It's an, it's a character that we need people to see one time. So for us, it was like, you know, let's bring in people that matter in these different, you know, if we went to Atlanta, we brought Jermaine Dupree out. We brought Little Yachty out in Atlanta. We brought Walker Flock out in Atlanta. Um, you go to Detroit, we brought out D12 in Detroit, you know, and they're, them, you know, Detroit, in Detroit, D12 is like, you know, when they were with Eminem, like that was those are the oh, hometown heroes. Okay, how do you literally make that happen? Just by hitting them up. You know, I would we would go on Twitter, DM them, or I would you know find a way to get intro to the manager and be like, hey, look, like Marshmallow's got. I would explain it to them like this: like Marshmallow's got a sold out show. There's five thousand kids that are dance fans. This is not a traditional show. Like we don't we're not offering money. Like, 
But if you want to come for, you know, a perf- one song, come, you know, and it's a whole new demographic you're exposing the artist to. And it would be one of their songs. It would be one of their songs. And people were always like, you know, if they if they realized kind of what it was and, um, you know, p- people had heard about Marshmallow, they were like, okay, cool, let's do it. So then we would get these people to come out and, you know, it created a moment for us too. You know what I mean? It was a cool moment. Um, and at that time we had racked up like 3 million followers on Instagram and Facebook was at a couple million. So we had a, a social reach that people were, you know, saw that like, okay, you know, it's cool. Okay, so let's go back to how you end up working with uh, Selena Gomez at all. Yeah, so what? So during Coachella, um, you know, Marshmallow had become friends with. Who was the special guest at Coachella? So the first weekend we brought out, uh, I forget what weekends we brought. We brought out ASAP Ferg. We brought out Yo Gotti. We brought out Travis Barker. Um, Osiris. Um, we brought out Andrew Watt, and then I'm trying to think who else we brought out. I think uh, I think that was it. I think we brought. Okay, at this point in time, since Marshmallow has his own sound, which is not as aggressive as other people's or his previous sound, and even though it's three years, many people might say it's overnight. Is there any backlash against him in the scene? Tons of backlash. Every DJ is like, yo, this is a gimmick. This is stupid. Like, this guy puts a bucket on his head and all of a sudden this, it's 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 not good music. The music sucks, all this shit. So we, we've heard it from every angle. Well, how do you cope with that? To be honest, we don't even let it, – it doesn't bother us. You know what I mean? Like, I, you know, for, for us, it's turned all of our lives around, you know. And, and, and none of the guests – Special guest said, no, I'm not going to play with you because of the no, backlash. No, not at all. I mean, because the backlash is all whispers. You know, nobody, nobody, nobody says it to us in person. Nobody says it, you know, no one's like vocal about it. But, you know, as we hear it from like, you know, other people in the industry, are like, oh, this DJ was talking shit saying like marshmallows cheesy or this person is this. Or like, you know, we'd walk into a, 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 you know, a festival and walk by the trailer of another DJ and, you know, they wouldn't acknowledge us or like. You know, so it's, I mean, it's just, it's, it's like any other industry. Well, since, okay, but since he's keeping his identity secret, when he goes to Coachella, he's got to wear the damn helmet yeah. the whole time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so it's, it sucks for him. And, you know, he, he always was like, you know, I can never connect with like, it, it was, what sucked was when he met artists outside of the dance world. So he met like a rapper or somebody and he would have to talk to him in costume. And then he would, you know, when he would not be in costume, he'd go up to that person and the person would be like, yo, who the fuck are you? We're going to pause for a moment. We'll be right back with my conversation with Mo Shalizi, manager of Marshmallow. Thanks for listening to the Bob Left Sets podcast. If you want to see videos and photos of Mo Shalizi, Tony Hawk, or any of my guests here in the TuneIn studios in Venice, go to at TuneIn on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And now, more with Mo Shalizi, manager of Marshmallow. So you play Coachella. You say this is a turning point. Yeah. Coachella was a big moment for us because, you know, we, we were going up against Kendrick. Uh, you know, we didn't know what it was what was going to happen. We are like, oh, man, we're going to get killed. It's Kendrick. Um, but, you know, the tent was rammed. Um, and uh, it was it was a big moment for us because so many people had were watching that that set and people had come and heard about it. And um, one, one of the, we wanted to create a moment at the thing. So we had a, a drum off between Marshmallow Challenge, Travis Barker, to a drum off. Is Marshmallow a drummer? He knows how to drum, but he's not. Okay. He's not Travis Barker by right. any means. But we did this thing where, and it was on the live stream where we brought Travis out, and out of nowhere, Travis rises on a riser, and then Marshmallow rises, and then they challenge each other to a drum off, and it was like a moment that you know Billboard and everybody's writing about. You know, one of the biggest moments of Coachella was this drum off, 
Um, we tried bringing Nickel back out. You know, that was the moment I wanted was bringing Nickel back out, but they uh, they were recording their album, so they couldn't. Otherwise, they would have done it. Yeah, we offered to get them a jet to come, and they're like, "We already have our own jet, uh, <laughs> but, but uh, we can't come because we're busy with the album." Um, I thought that would have been a dope moment to bring. Absolutely, yeah. their mistake. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so Coachella ends, and then all of a sudden, there's a buzz, and people are making offers. Yeah, so the people were making offers, um, and we had gotten in the studio with uh, a couple big writers, Andrew Watt, um, his crew. We had a couple records that we had done together, um, and we were just shopping for uh, top lines or for I'm sorry features. And Demi Lovato was like, I, you know, she hopped on one song, and then now we, did she? How did she find it? So I had sent it to because uh, Monty. So every every label that comes to the table, I was like, look, like if we're gonna talk, like show me what you're gonna do. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, you know, we've, we, I don't need your help developing the artist because at this right. point the artist is big. Just, like, show me what you're going to do that you're saying. You know, so um, we sent the music out to some people and, you know, I sent it to Monty and, you know. That's Monty Lippman at Republic. Yeah. So Monty was like, you know, let's let's see who we can get on this. And he had sent it to David Massey and then they sent it to Demi. And then I connected with Phil, Demi's manager, and was like, here's this record. And Demi loved it and she hopped on it. And then um, – you know, the Selena thing, kind of the same thing. Uh, Andrew Watt, one of the writers on the Selena record, had a close relation with Selena. Um, John Janik and I had met a bunch of times, and he was like, you know, I want to do something with Marshmallow. And, you know, he had heard the record and was like, let's let's put Selena on this. And I'm like, all right, cool. Let's do that. Uh, and then Khalid, uh, Marshmallow had brought Khalid to our Coachella house. So he'd, Khalid crashed on our couch for like four days during Coachella. He was coming out to perform with another artist, but he stayed with us. And they were supposed to get in the studio. They never did. And they had just met through Twitter. So he came with us, um, and nothing ever came of it. They just became friends, and that was it. And then two months later, um, Khalid was here in town, and, you know, Marshmallow hits him up, and was like, hey, man, let's just, you want to go in the studio? I'm in the studio. Khalid's like, uh, all right, I'll stop by. Stops by, and within four hours, they make the song Silence. It's just them two in the room, and, you know, they make the song Silence. And um, when, when all of us heard that, we were like, dude, this song is going to be huge. Um, so we reached out to RCA, like, you know, we want to put this out as, as soon as we can. Um, and that was right as Khalid was blowing up too. Um, we put the song out. The song now has, I think, almost like 800 million streams collectively through all the platforms. Um, it was like, you know, top 10 on Spotify for a couple months, big song. Um, and, uh, you know, from there, then we went to Selena and then now we just dropped the record, uh, the Friends record with Anne-Marie. And then tomorrow we have a single with, with, uh, with Chris, uh, with Logic. So Chris and I have been working together on the, the – Chris Zeru, the manager correct, of Logic. Correct. So Chris Zeru and uh, we're doing this uh, Logic and Marshmallow single. It's Logic's next single. Um, really dope song. Um, okay. So it's 2018. What's next? What's the next step? So for us is, you know, after I left that the dinner that you and I had at Jake's right. house with uh, – That's how I met Mo. We had a uh, couple months back. Yeah, yeah. We had dinner with Jake Udell and uh, it was us and – Manager Jeff, who manages Logan Paul. And that was before the crisis. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, uh, but, I, you know, I sat there listening to Jeff talk and was just like, I was, you know, I was fascinated in the sense of like, you know, uh, it's crazy this, the impact that Logan's had on social this media. Is Lo- this is Logan Paul, yeah, yeah, the so, YouTube star. Yeah. So, you know, listening to their concepts and listening to, you know, some of the stuff he said, you know, one thing resonated when he was like, if they're not watching you, they're watching somebody else. And I was like, okay, this makes sense. So 
Um, you know, when I got back home that night, I emailed my entire team and was like, hey, guys, first thing in the morning. How, wait, wait. How many people are on your team? Um, I have five five people that work with me. And what do the other five do? So th- uh, three of them are day-to-days. And right. then I have uh, one guy who's uh, a social media guy. He kind of runs some of the other artists' social media. And then uh, the other one's my assistant. Okay. So you get home and you email your team. I'm like, hey, you know, in the morning we have to have a talk about a content strategy. Uh, creating content because at the time we marshmallow had uh like you know four million youtube followers four or five million um and it was coming from the music videos and we were uploading a music video maybe once every month or two months and there was not a consistent feed of of content so i was just like after listening to to jeff i was like okay maybe like you know no what blows my mind is like their numbers you know it's like this logan's making probably 20 30 million dollars a year creating content in his house or wherever and it's like you look, think about the biggest musicians. Right, they don't make that kind of money. They don't make that kind of money, and they're touring the world and, <laughs> right. in a studio every single night. And you know, then Logan drops a song on on Spotify, and it's you know thirty million plays on Spotify, and he's in New Music Friday and all this shit. And I'm like, damn, like it's it's just, it's crazy. Um, but it really kind of like opened my eyes to it, where I was like, you know what, maybe we should focus more on content. And with Marshmallow, we have a character, so it's like, how do we create content around this character? Um, so it was from there that we started just coming up with different creative ideas to basically kind of have a piece of content that goes out every day. Um, so within the last, like, we've been, in the last, like, six months, we've been averaging 900,000 new subscribers a month. Um, so you, you're putting out content every day. What, uh, how many views does that content end up having? So the channel is doing 170 million views a month. Wow. Yeah, so the channel right now is averaging 170 million views a month across all the videos. What was it before, before you employed this new strategy? It was, I mean, it was it was growing. It was probably, that. I think we were at like 100 million. We had one music video for a song he did two years ago called Alone. The video is like a, a video about, it was kind of like him getting bullied as Marshmallow, and he grows up and becomes this DJ, and everybody starts to like him. All the kids that bullied him start being, like, trying to be cool with him. And we put this video out. And the video has almost 1.3 billion views in, in two years. And it's an independent record, no, no radio support, nothing. To the degree you can mention it or remember it, what is 1.3 billion views worth financially? Um, it, it's, I don't even know. To be honest, it's, it, it's probably a couple million. Okay. Um, but that, okay, so he had, he had this success previously, but now you're putting out content every day. Right. So we started putting out content, and we wanted to – we wanted to create a, a deeper connection with our fans. So one, the first concept that we created was cooking with marshmallow. So we were like, okay, let's let's look at it this way. How can we create something that's going to reach a different audience, but how can we tie it into our fans? And then, you know, also let's we need something that we can upload every week. You know, so we created this series, cooking with marshmallow, where we look at we take our biggest demographic, right? So Indonesia is our biggest fan base. So we go and create. Why is Indonesia your biggest fan base? I have no clue. I have no clue. Indonesia is our biggest, and we have like, I think our second, our Indonesia, Singapore, um, and then the U.S. and then Canada and then uh, Brazil is like our top five. And have you been to Indonesia yeah, and been, Singapore? We, yeah, we've done festivals in in both of them. Um, but I think it's because of the character. You know, the character really resonates with that side of the world. Um, but we, you know, we did cultural dishes of you know, like it, we did nasi goreng, which is like a Indonesian rice. It's like a, um, a fried rice that, you know, so we did this. And then we did, you know, for India, we did another dish. We did like chicken tikka masala. And then for Brazil, we did another dish. And for so for every market, 
that, you know, or for every demographic that we had a, you know, a big fan base and we did a dish that would resonate with them culturally. And how long were the clips? A minute and a half. So it's just... Hey, and he really doesn't know how to cook, does he? No. So it's just like, it's, but it's like those, those viral videos where it just shows the ingredients, how you put it in, make it, boom, walk, walk out with the dish. You know, very cl- quick, short form, one minute videos. Okay. Uh, but every time we were posting these, we were going to number one on all the cooking playlists. So for us, it was just like a new thing of like, so if you type in right now on YouTube, how to make Mongolian beef, right? The biggest video on YouTube right now has like maybe 300,000 views. Our video has a couple million. So right now we're at the top of how to make Mongolian beef. And it's like, okay, cool. Every time someone searches like these dishes, our videos are popping up because our fan base is fueling the views. I get it. I get it. So that's one day a week. What are the other six days so, a week? Yeah. So we tested this concept. Then we tested some animation as well into the like music videos. We started doing animated music videos. And now we're introducing three more concepts. So we're doing uh, uh, gaming with Marshmallow. So we're doing – we're getting like a bunch of the big gamers. You know, the gaming world is massive right now. Right. So we're doing uh, concepts with him gaming – with these guys and challenging them and stuff like that. We're doing life hacks with Marshmallow, um, which which is a, it's a series on how to live your life with a bucket on your head and the hacks that you take to, you know, do stuff. And then um, the other one that we're creating is uh, we're doing one called Unboxing with Marshmallow because unboxing is like a ma- – it's Yeah, so what's Marshmallow going to unbox? Just different stuff that relates to his fan base. So like DJ equipment and gear and stuff like that. Um but that one, that that's one that we're like really trying to figure out. But that's one of the concepts because we've been kind of looking at what are the biggest trends on YouTube, and how to bring our brand into that in a in a way that's organic and doesn't seem to. Right. To what degree are the people already subscribers and they're finding this, and what degree are you working it? Um, what do you mean? Are you socials? Are you saying today's video on Instagram and all this other stuff? Oh yeah. So every time we upload. Um, one of these videos to the YouTube, we're posting it on the other socials and stuff like that and posting clips, but we're driving all the traffic back to the YouTube. Um, right. And so to the degree you're knowledgeable, to the degree you care, is any other DJ doing this? No, not on this level. Because right now we've racked up, we're at almost 11 million subscribers. Um, and it's average, you know, that nobody, I don't, YouTube is like nobody's growth is as big as ours right now on the DJ space. And so YouTube notices this and what will they do for you? Dave, YouTube is uh, now helping, you know, fund some of the content. What kind of budgets do you using? Is it most of this zero budget anyway? No. I mean, because we're bringing in, you know, um, a full-on staff to or crew to film this and create the editing and all that stuff. And if you watch the videos, you see there's like – they're fun videos, sound effects, and they're fun to watch where, um, you know, there's a, some money that goes into that. So – but YouTube will help fund it. Yeah. Uh, they've, yeah, they put some money in. You know, and to what degree will they help promote it? Um, that's like that's to be determined on their end. Like they they'll right. they'll give us playlisting and stuff like that. Um, but you know, also they have to stay within their lines of right, right. I, I know that you know they they'll give you the money, but they don't want to promote it. They say it's you know contradiction in their ethos. But okay, so all this is happening, which is mind blowing yeah. and great. But what are the next couple of steps? I think for us is just you know we've uh, we've kind of solidified ourselves in the music space as far as music with releases and we've got a couple big singles coming out still till the end of the year we'll have a couple big records um but to be honest it's just about really uh solidifying the brand as a whole you know we just lo- we launched our tour 
um, a couple months ago. So we're doing the L.A. Convention Center in March, um, 22,000 tickets there. We already did two nights at Bill Graham. Uh, again, we're doing two nights at Red Rocks. Um, so we're going into another round of hard ticket stuff. Um, and then um, it's it's a lot of music. This, this Okay, you're playing festivals? Yeah, we're playing a couple big festivals. Um, he, you know, he's in Israel this weekend. He's in Israel and doing some, you know, more global stuff. But um, this year we've kind of slowed down and we're more so focusing on music and just creating content and all kinds of stuff. Like that. Okay, you know, the rule of thumb as a manager, you never want to be a manager who wants it more than the act. Right. So in this particular case, you have an act and everything's on his shoulders. To what degree does he want it and to what degree is he coping with this success? I mean, I think we've we've found a way to balance out what's on his shoulders. You know, his his he loves making music, and that's what we we try to alleviate as much stuff outside of you know what we can on our end. So like we can't obviously I can't tour for him. He has to go on the road, but he loves going on the road. For him, I think you know it's been such an eye opening experience. You know, meeting all these people. Like for him, that's what he gets off to the most. Is just like I don't think any of us thought the cultural impact and the global impact that Marshmallow would have has happened. You know, we never thought in a million years it would be this big and would have this kind of a footprint. Um, so for him, you know, he loves when he's home, he's in the studio or he's making music at home. And then um, if he's on the road, he's touring and he loves that. Um, and then everything else outside of that, we try to do ourselves and alleviate that pressure on him. So how many other acts are you managing at this point? I've got uh, about seven other acts. And since Marshmallow blows up, yeah. What opportunities come to you and your management company for getting Marshmallow? Uh, a lot, you know, from the clients that are now coming to the table to potentially sign. And um, there's a lot of big acts that, you know, I've been fortunate to, to turn down. Um, and then uh, just a lot of opportunities for all my artists as a whole. Um, and then, you know, just the relationships we've been able to build with other, you know, companies and managers and brands and stuff like that. So, And are you, if a big act came to you, would you make that deal? It depends. I mean, for me, again, like uh, it's it's about none of my clients. I don't ever wake up to one of my clients and be like, "Oh God, like he's calling me." You know what I mean? Like it, I love all my guys. We've come up together, so it's like a almost like it's become a family, um, and that's and that's the vibe I want to maintain. You know what I mean? None of my guys are hard to work with. Everyone is just like everyone's appreciative of where they're they're at, and there's no ego. We're all very grounded. Um, so then when you throw in somebody that's not like that into the mix, it, it throws off that dynamic. And that's what I would never do to, cause all my guys work together. Like they, if they're not making music together or not playing a festival together, they're hanging out, going bowling together or doing stuff like that. Now, since you're so successful, does it pay to be with an organization with red light or does it pay to be independent? Cause it used to be all managers were independent yeah. and now so many managers are either with live nation or with their Maverick or red light, certainly even I don't know whether in terms of acts they have even have more acts. I think it I think it depends on the person. You know, what I mean I think um, you know, for me starting out it was definitely helpful because, you know, I it gave me the like you know, the infrastructure was something I didn't have to worry about. I had that back end if I need you know, I knew I was getting a my my paycheck, you know, every two weeks I could live my life and focus on work. You know what I mean? And I think go, moving forward, you know, there's a lot of managers there that have, you know, kids and a family and they they're not trying to chase the dream in a sense. You know what I mean? They're they're content with working and paying a cut to, to the bigger man and to, you know, and that's it. Um, you know, so it works for some people. And then some people want to go to Live Nation and get a big check up front and live their life and invest in what they need to do to secure their future. And that's the way they look at it. Um, 
you know, but then there's other guys that, you know, being an entrepreneur is what's, you know, what, what drives them. And, you know, to, to, you can never, the idea you're working for other people's companies, you know, so if you're one of those entrepreneurs, you're always going to be waving somebody else's flag. Um, and if, you know, if that, that's cool with you, then that's cool. And if it's not, then, you know, you got to figure out what the right move is. This is Bob Leftsets. I'm a writer and you can read me at leftsets.com. If you like listening to innovators in the music industry like today's guest, Mo Shalizi, I'd like to invite you to attend my Music Media Summit in Santa Barbara the last weekend in April. I'd love for you to come and learn from the best of the business, like Troy Carter of Spotify. If interested, go to musicmediasummit.com for tickets and more information. I hope you'll join me. Let's continue the conversation with Mo Shalizi, manager of Marshmallow. Okay, so what's the status of electronic music? You're deep in the world. Conventional wisdom is that it peaked five or six years ago. What do you think? I don't think it's peaked. I think it's in a correctional phase. I think the consumption of music is so different now. I think with streaming, how people consume music is is so it's the attention span is so short now. So you know you got like in, in a, as a whole you know on the electronic side, there's so much saturation with kids that want to be an artist, a D- producer, a DJ, whatever, then you have an excess of festivals. You know, there's a festival popping up every other week now where, uh, you know, kids would rather go pay a hundred bucks for a festival ticket and watch 20 acts versus coming to your hard ticket show and paying 60, 70 bucks and just watching you unless you're a, you know, a diehard fan. But the way people are, you know, finding music now is through, you know, Apple music and Spotify and these playlists, you know, and this is my opinion. I, I think, well, that's why we're here. Yeah, we want yeah, your yeah. opinion. They're they're not building a real connection with the fan, or with, with the artist, um, you know, because you're you know you're you're connecting with the playlist now, and you're listening to that playlist over and over and over. But how many times are you discovering that artist on your own? Like you know, I found every one of my artists through SoundCloud. I was would go through SoundCloud to find an artist. I would follow their their career in a sense and their releases, and be like, wow, like I found this guy. I felt vested in. This guy that I found and I, I I started following before anybody else did. And I would tell my friends, like, yo, I found this guy named so-and-so. You should listen to him. Or, you know, and that was how it worked. Now it's like I think everyone kind of listens to a playlist and is like, you know, I, I'm guilty of it. I listen to, you know, Rap Caviar. I listen right. to Rap Caviar all the time because I'm like, yo, this is the newest hip-hop. It's the coolest hip-hop. It's, you know, and it's, it's probably the best song of that artist right now, you know. So why do I need to listen to anything else? Because here I can listen to 20 of the best songs – Right now, that are in the in you know, in the hip hop world. Why am I going to go elsewhere? You know, what I mean, I'm not going to go find the artist and be like, okay, um, you know, unless unless that artist really stands out to me, you know, um, and that's what I think. Like, you know, there's artists that have billions of streams on Spotify and you know on Apple, and they can't sell a single ticket, you know, because people aren't really becoming real fans. They're they're only with you as as much as you know. The, the music is there in a sense. and then once So let's assume you manage one of those acts. How do you make it so that they can sell tickets? I, you, I think you have to do a good job of building a core audience first. A brand, you have to build a brand that people connect to on the core level so you have these fans that are going to follow you through every footstep of the career. Um, and I think that's the hard part today. You know? Does that come before or after your first hit single? I think that comes way before. You know, I think because once you get to the commercial level – you know, we see it with all. I see it with all my acts. The second they do anything that's remotely commercial, all of the day one core kids are like, "You sold out. I don't want to listen to you anymore. I'm going to go to the next kid that's coming up on the underground." You know, and it's like you look at these SoundCloud rappers. You know, you look at these guys that are amassing massive followings from from that 
level. You know, it's that SoundCloud level. They're creating, you know, huge fan bases, and then, you know, then they're jumping up into the bigger level, and then, you know, it is kind of what it is. Yeah, but you say you want to establish, going through the threads here, how do you manage that as a manager where you know as soon as you have a hit, there's going to be a backlash, you're going to lose some core audience, or do you have enough people still left to make it work? I think it's making a hit that still resonates with your core. Like, you have to find, like, you know, if, if you went and you're a rapper and then all of a sudden you went and did a song with Selena Gomez, I think you're going to piss off a lot of people. You know, but if you do a song that, you know, is a really good song and, you know, your core can't really complain about it in a sense, it's not something that's completely off of your ethos of your brand in a sense, like, I think then you're okay. Okay, but if we went on Spotify right now and looked at the Spotify US Top 50, the vast majority of those acts would be urban hip-hop. Right. So where does this leave electronic music? Uh, it's in a weird state. I mean, it's definitely in a weird state. It's it's become electronic music has become pop music today. You know, I, I like you look at the you know the playlist for dance music and the streams are you know forty fifty thousand dollars uh, forty fifty thousand streams a day for the biggest songs on the plat on the playlist. Where you look at the pop side and the urban side, it's millions of streams a day. People aren't, and I think I think dance is losing more fans than it's regenerating right now. So. That's because the sound has changed or the listening platforms have made that so? I think it's I think it's just it, – it's been – you know, I think urban music has just come back so strong finally. And it, I think, you know, the culture that comes with urban – I think I was reading your, you know, your letter you wrote and it's so true about just there's culture with urban. Dance doesn't have a culture really. You know, pop, pop is what it is but um, – but dance originally came from rave culture. They grew up hand in hand. There was a live experience, right. which still exists to a degree. I mean, you go to Electric Daisy Carnival. If you're not there, you have no idea what's going on. It's not right. like going to the pop right. show at Staples Center. Right. But do you think it's just long in the tooth and people are just so entranced by hip hop? I think so. I think I think people are just – it's something new finally. You know what I mean? Like hip hop for a while was just so stale and like there was nothing. And now you have this new wave of like you know, the Lil Uzis and the Lil Yachty's and all these – you know, these guys that, you know, are creating a buzz and, you know, through social media and everything and people are attaching themselves to that. You know what I mean? So, you know, historically, prior to the Internet, every three years there was a new sound. I'm like Seattle killed the hair band sound and after that came pop, etc. Whereas one can say in this century, hip hop has been waxed and waned but been pretty dominant. So... Is that going to continue? I mean, I'm just asking your opinion because yeah. we don't have a crystal ball yeah. in terms of hip-hop is so dominant now because I think about it because all the other genres have bitched about new distribution platforms, not electronic. Electronic has had this moment where it's merged with pop anyway. But the non-pop, non-urban sounds, they've bitched so much about SoundCloud and Spotify, whatever, that they've been left out. Right. So the question becomes when they when their fans finally get on these platforms – do these new genres have a comeback or is it just forget it? I don't know the answer to that. I, I don't even know. I think uh, – I don't think urban's going anywhere. You know what I mean? I think it's it's really – there's a movement going on with it right now. You know what I mean? But in your particular case, Marshmallow was built outside the traditional thing. I mean if you, if you were to sign with a major label, yeah. what they would tell you is a couple of things. Besides the relationship with streaming services, they would say we have a relationship with terrestrial radio and we have a relationship with television. Right. In your particular case, both of those are essentially prior to the recent working with named talent have been completely irrelevant totally. to Marshmallow's success. Totally. Okay. Totally. Yeah. And 
I would assume there hasn't been that much, but mainstream press irrelevant too. Yeah, I mean, I, I think because the amount of organic press that's happened, like there's no kind of outlet that really we need. You know what I mean? Like it's always been like, you know, he doesn't do interviews. Till this day, he doesn't do interviews because we don't need it. So is this one of a kind or is this the new paradigm? No, I, th- I mean, I think, you know, I think there's a lot of anomaly. Like it's, a, it's an anomaly in a sense of how quickly and what it's done. But, you know, I think there's, you know, there's potential for other artists to pop up in the same way. Well, forgetting the fact that he's unique in terms of the sound and the look, et cetera, with the target audience, which is basically under 35, if not younger than that, do the old media really not matter to that audience? Um, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, let's go to one other question. To what degree in electronic music dates, to what degree are drugs an integral element of the show? I mean, I think that's like a common misconception because I think you go to Coachella, you see people doing drugs. You go to any any festival, people do drugs. You know, I, mean, I think it's just like anything else. You know, I think electronic music gets, you know, the shit end of the stick of a, if one thing happens, it's, you know, all hell breaks loose, you know, in in, in the eyes of the public. Um, but I think it's just like anything else. You know, kids are experimenting and kids are doing what they want to do. They're being kids and they're going to do shit, you know what I mean? Like in – for them, that's that's a way that they experience that that culture. Well, let's say if one went to an act in the classic rock heyday, it'd be very much about the act on stage and bonding with that act. Right. Whereas when many shows you go to today, never mind the festivals, which are really like that, the audience is the star. Right. And the audience is, you know, shooting selfies, to be going on Instagram, et cetera. So when we're at a marshmallow show, if we took out the drugs – and we, and as I say, I'm not saying there are more drugs than there are in any other show. Right, right. But to what degree is it a scene that the people want to be at and Marshmallow is just the juice? And to what degree is, oh, I got to go here, Marshmallow? I think it's it's probably half and half. You know, I think there's there's always going to be kids that want to just be in that environment to do what they want to do in a sense. You know what I mean? And if that's doing drugs or, you know, whatever, then, you know, they're going to do it. Um, but then, you know, there's a, a good amount of core fans that just want to be in that presence and want to watch the music and watch their performance and watch their favorite DJ, you know, play his his music. Okay, so you're 27. What's the dream marching forward, you personally? Um, I think it's, you know, I'm living it right now. You know, I couldn't I couldn't be happier with everything that's going on. And, you know, I, I never in a million years thought I'd be, you know, in, in the position I'm in. And, you know, it's all... It's all been an amazing experience just learning and growing and surrounding myself around people that I get to learn from and, you know, just watching everything that's going on in the landscape of music. Um, You know, so to be honest, it's just keep going. Okay. Marshmallow, you conceived of with the act and it's, you know, it's almost back to Iron Maiden where they have Eddie, which is bigger than, you know, the faceless act. And... Is this a replicable thing or, no, we did it once, we move on to something else? I think, uh, I think it's harder to break an artist now than ever, you know what I mean? And I think the, the tools and kind of the, you know, the things we had three years ago are not, are not as – it's not as easy as it was then. You I mean, and like, again, like I think SoundCloud was a huge part in, in Marshmallow's success and a lot of my artists' success. And like SoundCloud now is, has become, you know, kind of – not irrelevant, but it's become like moribund. Right, right. So it's like things like that where 
Um, then you have to play the politics of the DSPs. You know what I mean? If you do something with Spotify, then, you know, uh, someone, you know, you're upsetting another partner and then vice versa. And it's just like there's a lot more politics that you have to play with and, you know, artists have to, to go through the hoops in a sense sometimes. Since we're talking about DSPs, to what degree with Marshmallow is Amazon important? To be honest, we haven't really done anything with Amazon. I mean, we, no, because it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's like Garth Brooks is only on Amazon. Yeah. And, you know, you talk to the manager and say, why aren't all these other services? Then they start talking about what Amazon did for them and the number of streams they got in Amazon. You go, hey, it might be working for them. Right. And when you sit with the people from Amazon who are anything but pompous, you know, they talk about opportunities. It's, it's an interesting thing. Yeah. So – Okay, if you were to view yourself 10 years out, you view yourself as a manager. I mean, because you've had a lot of history with a lot of things. You've been a hustler with DJ's promoter. You've been a rep for HP. I mean, a lot of people, David Geffen started out as a manager, although he certainly manages people at this point in time. That would not be his job. Right. Okay, do you have any vision of where you would like to be? Or are you just saying, I'm here now, I'm seeing what's coming over the transom? I mean, I, th- I think it's, I-, I love, you know, I love my job as a manager. You know what I mean? I love, I love doing what I do. I love waking up every morning wondering how I could, you know, make an artist's footprint even bigger. Um, and how do you keep this going? You know what I mean? I think that's the challenge. And, you know, unfortunately, it's also kind of like a curse. Like I can't, you never stop working. You know what I mean? You know, okay. So that's it. So there's seven days in a week. You ever take time off? No, never. Have a girlfriend? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so how does she cope with this? Uh, she comes second to my eight other boyfriends. So. And so if, if she were listening to this right now, she would say, yeah, that's it, and I own yeah, that. Yeah, she she knows. Okay. She knows. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a curse, but it's also like I love what I do. You know? And you're riding the wave right yeah. now. Yeah, and it's like I, every missed opportunity, I feel like if I'm not on it, I'm missing an opportunity. You know what I mean? If I'm not you know, out there networking or doing what I need to do, I feel like I'm not doing – you know, my job as a manager and... And to degree, you have an office. Are you in the red light office? Yeah. So okay. So how often are you in that office? Um, maybe like once a week. Okay. Yeah. And where are you the rest of the time? The rest of the time I'm, I, you know, I have a home office too. Um, so I have my staff come there sometimes, but I also, I'm always just on the meeting after meeting after meeting. So more so in my car, just driving around. <laughs> Okay, you've been listening to Motion Easy. If your head is not spinning, you didn't pay attention. <laughs> this is the new world with a young guy, incredible success. The whole bit about the daily YouTube, I'm thinking about, you know, I was there when that happened. We batted around ideas, but I'm sitting here right now and go, God, what am I doing wrong? <laughs> so thanks for helping me. Till next time, it's Motion Easy on the Bob Left Sets podcast. That wraps up this week's episode of the Bob Left Sets podcast with Mo Shalisi. My head is spinning. I feel inadequate. And I'm decades older than Mo. I got to go home and contemplate my future. As always, you can give me feedback on the conversation. Reach me at bob at leftsets.com. I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did.